From WNYC, I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is Note to Self. Everything we do throughout the day is tracked, right? And we know it, and we're okay with it. It's really hard to surprise me anymore. I feel like the internet's desensitized me. The tech show about being human. Okay, today, a question from a listener in upstate New York named Michael Grant. Now, before I play you the voice memo that Michael sent us, I just want to say that this is producer Ariana's favorite note-to-self voicemail of all time. Just putting that out there. Yay, Michael. And we've been saving it for a while because we couldn't find the right person to answer it. Okay, I'll tell you who's going to answer it in a minute. But first, here's Michael's question. Now, just so you know, Michael has a town car business, so he spends a lot of time driving people around. Here we go. Hi, note to self. (laughs) I get out of the shower and I'm getting dressed. And of course, my dog is over there on his chaise. And I'm looking at him and I'm feeling all sad that I'm about to go off to work for a couple hours. And I'm humming to myself a song and I start singing. My poor dog is tortured by this. But I start singing a song. Every time we say goodbye, I cry a little. Or I die a little. You know that song, every time we say goodbye. Which I haven't heard in, I don't know, forever. Then I hop in the car, I put on the iPhone music. I have 6,157 songs. I hit shuffle randomly, and the first song to play is the song that I was just humming. Now, I know you're thinking, well, you probably just heard it, you know, from a recent playlist. And it's like, no, I haven't heard that song in forever. The very song I'm humming is the first song to play. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. But But then something else happened. Michael was driving someone to the airport, and he asks his passenger, what airline are you flying? And he says, I'm on Virgin. And I said, great, do you know which terminal? And he says, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, it doesn't really matter because we're going to, you know, it'll be on a sign and we'll find it. Just to make sure he's going the right way to avoid traffic, Michael turns on his navigation app, which uses voice recognition. And he asks, how do I get to JFK from here? And that's all I said, just JFK. And she says, JFK, Terminal 4, here's how you get there. Now, I never said Terminal 4. I never said Virgin. I just said JFK. But it turns out Terminal 4 is where Virgin is. This is my question. With the song and with Virgin being the destination without my saying Virgin, are our phones listening to us? I'm not a conspiracist theory, I'm not a crazy person, but I'm having these weird coincidences where things I'm thinking and things I'm saying are being answered by the phone in a very specific and offbeat way. Michael, you are not the only one with this question. Listeners Heather Kelly, Rachel Watson, Mike Kaiser, and others also wrote in after very similar experiences. You know, this idea that you say something out loud, for them it happened to be something about bike tires, tunics, and biographies, and then that very specific topic turned up when they went online. And it's happened to me, too. Yeah. And I also worried if I was being completely paranoid. And I'll tell you what didn't make me feel any better. There's this new report out this week from the New America Foundation called Ranking Digital Rights. Their team read all the user agreements, the privacy policies, the terms of service, you know, all the stuff that we don't read, or if we do read it, we don't really understand it. They read it all and scored telecom and internet companies on privacy and censorship. 
the best scoring company was actually Google. I was surprised about this. It got a 65%, a D. Facebook, it scored 41%, an F minus. The lowest, just, you know, because it's interesting to know, was a Russian email service that mostly makes spam accounts. Anyway, the report really does show how little control we have over anything. Our texts, our voices, videos, anything that passes through these tech companies. And it's disconcerting. Which brings us back to Michael and our other listeners' questions about whether our gadgets are eavesdropping on us. Do we know whether they're passively listening? No, we don't know that for sure. We did ask Google and Apple. We haven't heard back from them yet. But we do know voice recognition is what all these companies are trying to get us to start using. Google has OK Google. Apple has Siri. Amazon has the new Echo, this home appliance that listens to you all the time. That's how it works. So as we go along, opting in or opting out of all these technologies, we kind of really need to keep the long game in sight. Well, the guy that we talked to today, the very smart and funny writer Walter Kern, says that if you're not feeling a little paranoid, you're the crazy one these days. Okay, so you know the movie Up in the Air? It was based on one of Walter's books. I work for a company that lends me out to cowards that don't have the courage to sack their own employees, and for good reason. Who are you, man? Because people do crazy stuff when they get fired. That's just a side note. Cool movie. But Walter Kern has also written a lot of very seminal stuff about privacy and technology and surveillance. And he writes about it in a very beautiful and literary way. It's very tangible. His most recent piece is, If You're Not Paranoid, You're Crazy. It's an awesome, beautiful article. You can check it out at theatlantic.com. And Walter had his own weird say-it-out-loud-it-comes-back-at-you experience. But his had to do with walnuts. Here's what happened. I had just gotten one of those fitness bands that you link up wirelessly to your phone, and you can get readouts of your sleep the night before, how many steps you've taken, and so on. And part of this app included little health tips, what you should eat, and so on. And uh, I was in the kitchen, and I called to my wife to ask her if we had any walnuts. I wanted to put some in my oatmeal that morning. And she didn't hear me. She was running the faucet in the other room. All of a sudden, in the window for the little fitness tips or the health tips comes, you should eat more walnuts. And it took me aback. And I thought, are these things listening to me? And I started researching the situation, and I realized that it was, first of all, technically possible that they were. Secondly, having been sensitized to the fact that there was a very porous border between my life, my mind, my activities, and what was coming through my devices, I started to see more coincidences, as it were, more walnut moments. As I got deeper into the subject and saw the sort of feedback loop between the decisions we make, the words we say, the online searches that we perform, and the way we're targeted in ads and emails, I started to realize that the paranoiac vision of science fiction writers back in the 60s, 70s, and before of a world in which you know we're overheard, in which we're addressed constantly by unseen masters, had really come to pass. And that, in fact, the situation was such that to be paranoid was to properly 
understand what was going on rather than be delusionally afraid. I mean, there might be some people who are like, dude, there's really no need to be paranoid about walnuts. They have good anti-inflammatory properties. Just chill out. Yeah, there is no reason to be paranoid about walnuts specifically. But, you know, take take the following trip with me. If my internet searches, if my behavior, if the mic on my phone, you know, your phone's often asking you for something called mic permission when you Mm -hmm. get a new app. You probably don't know what that means. It means it wants the right to listen to you, to turn on your mic and to forward that information to whoever it might be able to sell it to. Imagine that the information you're generating about yourself through all your behavior online and even in the real world in the case of things that can be overheard by a mic is being put together, mined, analyzed for clues as to what your future behavior will be, how you might be manipulable when you make decisions. Maybe it's as simple as how do we sell this guy something? But maybe at another level, it's as complex as, is this person congenial to a political platform that we might want to sell him? In other words, you know, the political campaigns go a long way toward analyzing every individual in terms of their preferences and likelihood in voting for a certain candidate. What if the same techniques that are used to recommend you an Amazon book or send you a spam email based on what they know you might be likely to buy are used to influence your political public behavior? They will be. Be certain of it. They are being. Be certain of it. It's all dependent on you being a rather innocent laboratory subject, though. It's interesting to me also that it sort of messes with the social contract. One of the examples that you use is membership, your membership Mm -hmm. in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is supposed to be confidential. But you were saying that you started to get the sense that maybe the machines knew you were an Alcoholics Anonymous. They absolutely did. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous suggests that we don't advertise our affiliation with it. And I try not to. But I was outed without my consent by my phone. Let's put it that way. I made a search of AA meetings looking for the locations in an unfamiliar city, Los Angeles. Once I'd done that, very rapidly I was targeted with ads for rehabs, very sort of pushy, nudgy ads. You know, are you tired of breaking your loved one's heart? Isn't it time <laughs> you got clean, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And then At a certain point, another thing happened. There was a guy I met in AA where people introduced themselves by their first names. And often you never learn the last names of people you meet at AA. Yeah, right. But you do share phone numbers to use in case you should have a weak moment or you want to give each other support or reach out for support yourself. So I gave a guy my phone number, but I didn't know his name. Then on Facebook, a few days later, his picture shows up as someone I may know. (laughs) And so Facebook had figured out that we knew each other. And I tried to retrace how this was possible. And I found out that when he entered my phone number in his iPhone, it went to a database that suggested we knew each other, which fed back to Facebook, which led to his picture showing up on my page. You know, so in both these instances, an organization which attempts to be confidential and uh, maintain privacy, and in which that is essential. People aren't going to come to 
Alcoholics Anonymous if they think it's going to be broadcast or if they think that their problem is going to be widely known. In both these cases, that barrier had been compromised. So we all sort of sense that these things are happening. And I think, you know, like you said, like a lot of us feel that the paranoia must not be warranted, surely. But as we learn, you know, from the things you've been telling us and the things that we start to learn about businesses and Apple and Amazon and all these other companies, some of our paranoia is indeed warranted. And what about the government? That, it seems like people have almost given up on it. Like they're like, yep, the government's listening in. Here's the thing. You know, the title of my piece is If You're Not Paranoid, You're Crazy. And by paranoid, I mean if you are not highly sensitive to the notion that more is going on than you realize, you're crazy. Now, without Edward Snowden, we would not even have the foggiest sense of a whole range of programs that are being aimed at us. Programs like X-Keyscore, which can read our keyboard entries remotely. Programs that automatically and remotely turn on our laptop camera to watch us. All these things would be unknown to us if it weren't for this one guy. Well, how much has happened since he came out? How many new techniques, new programs have been started? We have no idea. You have to be paranoid when you know that someone is operating secretly to take an advantage over you, and you have no way into that process, and we don't. And you wanted to see, actually, physically, where the government is keeping a lot of this data. And can you tell me about your trip to Utah? Yeah, so I got it in mind that this privacy issue, this issue of surveillance, is all very abstract. You know, it's in the cloud, literally in the cloud, in the sense that the computing cloud that we see referred to, but never can actually touch, holds a lot of this information. So I drove down to Utah with a friend to the NSA's recently completed multi-billion dollar data center, the place where it is mm, guessed by those who know a thing or two. They store all the information that is collected by these various programs and will store it for decades to come. It's a very sort of spooky, monolithic set of buildings on a big hillside outside Salt Lake City. And I and this friend, at night, crept through a snowy field to get as close to it as possible. Why? What could be learned? Only this, that nothing could be learned, that it is opaque, that it is a black box on a hill. But what's amazing about it is that all our information, which we think is almost infinite, can fit in a shockingly small set of buildings. A set of buildings about the size of maybe the Mall of America in Minneapolis can hold the next five decades of human internet and uh, technological transactions in its servers. Most of those buildings are simply devoted to cooling the central building where this stuff is kept. So tell me like that moment when you're standing there and you see those buildings, you write in your article that you heard something coming in from the distance. Well, one of the old sort of myths of the conspiracy theorist, the, the paranoid nut, was that there exist these things called black helicopters, dark, monstrous craft used by the government to do who knows what. Of course, we know now because of the bin Laden raid that stealth helicopters do exist. But I'm standing in this field outside this data center at night. And all of a sudden, 
we hear this very faint, very sort of suppressed thwopping sound. Thwop, thwop, thwop. And look up, and over us we can sort of see just the barest outline of some sort of craft, and quite distinctly a tiny blinking red light. And here was this, you know, all but invisible helicopter hovering over us, directly over us as we stood on the edge of this thing. I was there in search of metaphors, and I really got one. Here was this invisible craft, barely discernible, probably able to scan the information in the phone inside my pocket. I mean, that technology exists. It's called Stingray. You know, there are fake cell phone towers all over the country and in aircraft that the FBI flies that can sort of pick up cell phone locations and so on. Hey, it's Manoush in the studio here. Just jumping in to say, we actually did an episode about Stingrays with Jad Abumrad from Radiolab. Just go back in your podcast feed to June. Okay, back to Walter. This thing was probably reading that. There was every reason to believe it could have gotten my identity out of, you know, the device in my pocket, relayed it to headquarters, found out who I was, and then it flew away ultimately. And And maybe they just said, oh, he's some literary guy. He writes screenplays. Don't worry about him. Well, you know, I was almost insulted by how little time it spent. I would have (laughs) liked it to, uh, you know, land and take me into custody at least. But, you know... I went on this little adventure, this sort of gonzo journalistic errand, because I wanted to feel in an emotional way, up close, the presence of this surveillance state, which is so dispersed and abstract that we almost feel it's the air we breathe. Mm. You know, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I just looked up the definition, Mm. the official definition of paranoia, and it says suspicion and mistrust of people or their actions without evidence or justification. Now, we're starting to have the evidence and justification, which means that we just are left with suspicion and mistrust of people or their actions, which sounds like, Mm -hmm. actually, let's just call that fear. And yet we're not living in a country that feels overtaken by fear. Not at all. I mean, you look at Facebook, if anything, it looks mostly like shiny, happy people, right? You know, I wonder about that strangely. Yes, it looks as though we are confidently and voluntarily giving up every last bit of private information to the web. It looks as though the last thing we fear is having our privacy invaded. But I've started to wonder if whether it's a kind of you can't fire me, I quit reaction. Mm. That in a world where we don't expect privacy, in a world where the default setting is you can find out anything about me. We want to be in control of our image. And a generation that's trained to make itself look good on Facebook is really, in fact, converting a certain anxiety it has about its real self being seen into a performance. You know, you've got two options when you find out you're under surveillance, and only two. One is hide, and the other is perform. Hmm. We've picked perform. Wow. Usually what happens after I do interviews like this, I walk out and the younger people who are listening to the conversation (laughs) kind of cross their eyes at me and are like, you kind of just don't get it because you didn't grow up with this. You don't know what it's like to not have a line dividing your private and public persona. These Mm -hmm. things are merged in a way that you just can't get. 
Well, you know, first of all, every generation is entitled to its own experience. And one that grew up, let's see, with armed militia in the streets might turn to the older people who were there before that and say, what's the big deal? You know, people with guns, Mm -hmm. I don't care. But I did meet in the course of my reporting this story, a young man, I was sitting in a hot tub with him, frankly, after having gone to this data center. And I told him what I'd done. He was an 18 year old kid. He said, you know, they're never going to find out anything about people by tracking them. We should just have big centers where people go and talk about their lives and sort of voluntarily give up, you know, any information that the government or whatever might be interested in. And you know, it was a very odd thing for him to say, but it had a sort of genius to it. And it speaks to our point just now about Facebook. For those who uh, wonder why we should be concerned about privacy, they also have given up on the thought that there is a hidden interior life, that it can be defended at all, or that it's Mm -hmm. worth defending. Now, my generation thinks there is one. My generation thinks that if you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing going on, frankly. And I would argue that privacy is going somewhere and thinking a thought that is deeply, potentially, not acceptable in society. But it's okay. It's just a thought. And it's only in your mind. And you can have that thought because (laughs) that's what solitude is. Hey, half the thoughts we have would be deeply unacceptable to the person sitting next to us or the mate sleeping in the same bed with us or the boss across the office from us. Having an interior life means thinking things that you don't want to say aloud. Otherwise, you'd just be babbling on all the time. You know, the other thing is this. Once people take as a given that all of their secrets would be ferreted out or that having secrets is something to be guilty about in itself. They start to become kind of robotic. And my fear is that as we stop defending this interior space, we'll start to do things and think things and censor our very inner life in a way that doesn't cause us any anxiety. And the real cost of surveillance is that our inner lives become impoverished, that the set of moves that we make as thinkers and emotional beings and so on becomes reduced. In that way, we start to become the machines that we're afraid are invading our lives. We can't beat them, so we join them. So last question, have you changed any of your behavior so that you have less walnut moments? Or would you tell our listeners who maybe were singing a song to their dog and then found that Spotify played them, (laughs) that that exact song when they got in the car? I got off Facebook. I mean, to be very specific about it, I got off Facebook. Uh, It is such a rich trove of information. And frankly, I think it's stealing people's property. I mean, you're giving up all this information about your relationships, your preferences, and so on. I mean, they could at least pay you for it because they're making money off it. Secondly, I don't think we should have to go around playing spy, counter spy, encrypting our emails, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we should demand from the companies, from the government, from the institutions that are capable of this sort of thing, we should demand a greater level of disclosure. We can get it. It's just that we would rather sort of move on and kick that can down the road. The problem is 
that someday there will be so much information on all of us. And we have no idea what future regime, what future purpose it might be used to advance. And, and so the time is now. It's time to make a fuss. Yeah. And, you know, at the very least, we might lose some weirdness, which would be really sad, right? You know what? When I make this argument to real conservative types, I say, you know what? Our weirdness is our greatest economic <laughs> virtue in this country. We would not have the personal computer... We would not have half these technologies that have made us so wealthy and so powerful if not for those weirdos in their garages, often LSD-using rock and roll freaks who came up with half this stuff. That atmosphere of anything-goes creativity is being suppressed by the very technology that was produced by that culture. That can't happen. Well, I've enjoyed keeping it weird with you, Walter. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're welcome. Walter Kern's latest article for The Atlantic is called If You're Not Paranoid, You're Crazy. It is definitely worth a read. It brings to life subjects that can often seem cold and remote. Okay, so a lot of you have been doing our photo decluttering project, the one that we laid out last week with help from Alan Henry from Lifehacker. We're going to be following up with some of you to hear how it's going. You know, not just the organizing part, but whether your photo-taking philosophy has changed, the way you think about capturing a moment. As one listener put it, I feel like we're all becoming experience hoarders. Totally. So tell us how you're dealing with it. Have you decided that taking photos has become kind of a crutch? Or are you doubling down on documenting your life? No judgment here. We respect both. And if you remember, I asked a big question in the middle of that last episode. Why do I take so many pictures of my stupid children? Like, they're... And we're asking your help to answer it. My children are not stupid. But why did I take so many pictures is a very valid question. So we want to know, why did you take the last picture on your phone or other camera of choice? Send it to us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with the hashtag photoclutter. You can also submit it on our website, noteselfradio.org slash clutter. We want to see, pun intended, what we can learn about our photos and our photo-taking habits from this snapshot of life. My husband and I sat down last night and talked about it and basically something needs to happen because I find that when we're having a great time and out doing something, if I start taking pictures, sometimes he'll start groaning and he'll always quote the number of pictures that we have on our computer already. And before we go, I just want to thank you guys for listening and then trying these weird life and tech experiments with us. I love that we are figuring this stuff out together. It's pretty awesome. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Ariana Tobin, and Joe Plord. Our interns are Miranda Katz and Cristaly Zappamontoroso. This is Note to Self from WNYC. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and I'll see you next week. Every time we say goodbye, I cry a little. Or I die a little, you know that song. I die.